Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Oppressive August heat all over the United States after an eclipse. And it only means one thing. We're at the stage in NFL preseason games that nobody wants to be at. Just get out of them, not injured. College football, pretty darn close. NBA, NHL, not that far away. Golf's majors over, starting for playoffs. And there's going to be an interesting fight, which is not your normal fight, but for dissection and analysis, can't have anybody better but the worldwide guru of digital for Reuters, Dan Colarusso. Hi. Rick, so good to be here. The Conor McGregor-Floyd Mayweather fight, um, I was infinitely disinterested in until ESPN broadcast that Conor McGregor sparring session or whatever that was. Um, This is a really fascinating endeavor. I mean, we've joked in the past about Muhammad Ali and Antonio Inoki, um, but uh, this is is a real fight, and this is going to be... this is going to be really interesting, I think. I, you, know, uh, you said, Rick, um, you, in your notes, you said the head of the UFC said this was the biggest fight ever. Well, I think it's maybe the biggest fight ever this year. It's not bigger than Ali Frazier. I don't think it's bigger than Ali Foreman. Um, but in terms of dollars, it has a significant impact because UFC is on the way up. Boxing is level or on the way down. It's a chance for both of them to stay relevant with a big audience. Uh, I think it's I think it's going to be an event. It's it's one I've gotten interested in, and if I'm emblematic of the typical kind of older male viewer, I think it's it's gotten people interested. Much older male viewer, and and Much. by the way, if we 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 have to uh, stop the podcast if we've actually found a sporting event that Dan Colarusso is interested in, but but it but it really is more than that. <laughs> You know your your dreaded Mets continue to uh, to uh, ready rush for the 2016-17 exits, and you find a sport that at the end of August keeps you interested. Right. And by the way, uh, Dana White, who did say it's going to be the biggest fight in the history of the universe, he did say that it's going to crack the Vegas over underline of 4.9 million Showtime pay per view buys, wow. which means about 430 million dollars in revenue. And who set that? Three years ago, two years ago, Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao. Pacquiao. Now Mayweather will make three fifty, probably. Uh, McGregor, he hasn't disclosed, but White says it'll be life-changing money. Yeah, it'll be life-changing. And you know, Dana White's been synonymous with hype before, but frankly, I've never seen such ridiculous slash attention-getting hype for any event in history, and it may raise a new bar. What do you think? Well, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the Conor McGregor thing was really interesting. I was on a business trip, and I was between meetings in my hotel room. I flipped on ESPN, and I caught that that insanity. And then they had Teddy Atlas on, and then they had some UFC guy on, and they were kind of dissecting, you know, Conor McGregor shadow boxing. And I was like, wow, this is like a Super Bowl pregame show. They're spending an hour talking about nothing. Um, but that's exactly what makes it interesting. And I think from a financial point of view or marketing point of view, I'm an older American male. I'm a boxing fan. I was a boxing fan. I've lost interest because there aren't many great fighters anymore. Um, but I'm a traditional boxing fan. On the younger end of the spectrum, 
they're a UFC and these mixed martial arts fans. This is a, a real way to bring those together in a, in a serious way. And McGregor is, they're both showmen. Uh, I think McGregor's the per, one of the few UFC guys who could probably pull this off. I mean, the event, not winning. Um, and Mayweather is the right boxer because he's not too big. He's a craftsman. And it's going to be an interesting thing. It may not be a very good fight, um, but it's going to be an interesting event. I think we crank it up and see if uh, Evil Knievel jumps the Snake River Canyon. Oh, that was years ago. It, it, but it's the <laughs> same, listen, it's the same kind of unknown. The only difference is these are two people who are at the respective pinnacles of their professions. And we're in an age now where the money flows fast and furious. And I guess, as they say in the business, we'll just have to see. Who do you like? And it's a noisy world. To follow up on that just quickly, it's a noisy world, and you got to be over the top to get attention um, in this current environment. I li- I'm a boxing fan. I'll take Mayweather. I'll go with what Teddy Atlas was saying. McGregor looks kind of flat and two-dimensional. Yeah, and I also think McGregor doesn't understand boxing gloves as much as Mayweather, and that's the rule, so it kind of yeah. favors Mayweather. So. For the first time in our relationship, I actually agree with you. And, uh, you know, moving on to something else that's a little less controversial, meaning right Mm -hmm. and wrong. This year's coming NBA schedule came out, and it emphasizes player rest and health. And what it does is, by the way, there are no four game in five nights there. Union got in the middle of this. The multiple national televised games on ABC last season were marred, as you remember, because a lot of guys sat it out. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, 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 yeah. Coaches like Popovich said, "Look, I want to sit my guys for when it counts in the playoffs." Mm-hmm. ABC is trying to boost boost its ratings this season. None of the back to back ABC Warrior games are Warriors games. They're having some interest in making sure they promote that brand. But it is good for the players in the sense that now the whole rest idea is going to be a little difficult, more difficult to pull off. Don't you think? I think the rest idea. Um is good for the fans. It's good for the players. Um, I don't want to, if uh, you know, I, I was a net season ticket holder for a while, and I always, always make sure I got the Spurs game. I owned some tickets with a bunch of guys, and I would always make sure I got the Spurs game because I like to see the Spurs. I like to watch the Spurs. And if I was going to see the Spurs, I want to see the big three. I wanted to see the big three play. I think it goes to respecting your customers, and I think that's a great thing, uh, and respecting and realizing the NBA has again become a league where superstars are the draws, uh, even more now, right? Um, and, and you have to respect those players and how much their bodies can take, and you've got to leverage them, their assets. It's almost like an innings limit for pitchers in, the, in major leagues, right? I mean, you've got to keep these guys rested and healthy. You want to prolong their careers. They want to prolong their careers. Um, and it's, it's just a matter of, you know, treating your assets um, in terms of the players and the customers, treating both sides with ample respect. I'm actually, I'm really, I didn't know about this until you told me, and I would, uh, and I would say it's one of the more positive things I've seen on the sports front, business-wise, um, in ages. Well, and, and by the way, we all understand how valuable the NBA, when it's played well, is one of the reasons why college basketball and NBA, because over in two hours, you understand that you get it pretty well and it's packed with some action. And get ready for the meat the track powerhouses, U.S. and Great Britain, square off next July, running, jumping, hurdles, and relays. Every event and competition will get finalized in the next few weeks, but it's fast-paced, meaning the whole thing is scheduled in a frenzy, 
and it lasts only for two hours. And you can't imagine track being a speed sport between the guns of opening and closing. But here's an interesting way to appeal to the fan on television and otherwise. You package everything in two hours. What do you think? If you, you think about how popular track and field is in the Olympics and how that popularity never follows past the Olympics. And why is it? Well, we can't focus. We don't have the time. Meets last for days, all that. I really like the idea of changing the form factor to this to make it more friendly to the viewers. You know, it's a value play, I think, on broadcast rights. I think if this works, you know, there's a nice package you could put together to sell rights to something, both digital and broadcast, that is consumable and attractive and interesting and fast and has big names. Uh, and I think that works really, really well. And, I, you know, do you think that this is where this is going to head or do you think it's going to just be a, a live event that works well? I think it's a great experiment. I think the 20-somethings cricket proves you can box something like this internationally. I think the Rugby Sevens, where the games are over in 13 minutes, is exactly the same kind of thing. Next week, we'll cover on-site and otherwise the U.S. Open tennis. One of the biggest problems they have, Dan, is that you don't know if a match is going to be an hour or six hours. And so packaging this in a two-hour increment is really good for the game. I totally agree with you yet again today. When you're presenting something to people, because of the way the audience is fragmented and hyperactive these days, um, you have to set a bargain with them. They have to know what they're getting before they start to get it, or they won't even start. And, and that's kind of, this is the bargain track and field is making. I think it's like an interesting concept. I'm, I'm eager. I hope we talk about it again. I'd like to see how it works out. Well, we'll talk about it again. We'll like to see how it works. But another bargain with the audience and the younger demographic, just bear with us because there's a very important point at the end of this interview. The interview is Pete Lecoq. Now, many of you probably don't know who he is. He played for the Cubs from 72 to 76. Then he played for the Royals. And 224 RBIs and 257 lifetime batting average, 27 home runs. The Cubs' first round pick in the 70 draft. Why is that relevant? Well, he is a renaissance guy. He does a lot of stuff now as an athlete in business after he retired. But that's not good enough. He's the son of Peter Marshall on any of you guys or gals who know what Hollywood Squares was way back when. He was uh, friends with the Rat Pack, Sammy Davis Jr., and the whole idea of sports and entertainment takes a new twist. This is a guy who couldn't sing and went into baseball, unlike the other people who really can't play and went into some other kind of job. So, ladies and gentlemen, bear with us. I think you'll be happy with what you hear, Pete Lecoq. Sports professor Rick Harrell keeping score beyond the boardroom. Very interesting perspective here. We're at the Joe Madden trying not to suck benefit tournament. It benefits his Hazleton Foundation, HIP, the Integration Project. And each year it's been more of a tradition. And one of the stalwarts of the Cubs who has an incredibly interesting story, Pete Lecoq. Pete has been toiling in the hinterlands uh, with the Cubs, obviously, for years and proud like everybody is, player and fan, to look back and have people stop him on the street and talk about what it's like to now be affiliated in some way with the defending world champion Chicago Cubs. How does it feel? It feels great. You know, when I first started with the Cubs, you know, I was kind of at the end of the the, the old guys era, you know, with uh, Sano and Kessinger and Becker and Pepitone and, you know, I learned a lot of baseball from these guys, and, and they took me under my wing when I first got up because I was young when I got there. And it was, and you know, I saw the evolution of uh, baseball. And the evolution of baseball has been quite significant. So 
from when you broke in, which was when? It was 1971. All right, so it's been 80 years? No, it's been a long time since you broke in. It feels like it. What is the biggest change that you've seen in the business of baseball since you broke in in the early 70s? Well, I think money is probably the biggest thing that you see. You know, when I was first year, it was minimum salary was $18,000, and now it's uh, almost half a million dollars. And so that has changed the game a lot. Uh, a lot of times when you were doing uh, appearances, autograph things, it was to make money and, and to get by. But, you know, now things have changed where these guys have enough money to do whatever they want. So 46 years since you broke in, and the payroll now for the Cubs starting the season was about $178 million. Do you have second thoughts? If you had to do it over again, would you have been born 45 years later? Absolutely not. I really love the time that I played. You know, these guys were so dedicated. I remember coming up and seeing Fergie Jenkins and Billy Williams and Ernie Banks, and these guys were making $100,000 a year. They played 20 years, Hall of Fame careers. Things have changed. Everybody in Chicago that I've talked to, it's generational. They remember where they were. The Kennedy assassination, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, if you go way back when. This rises to that. How does it make you feel of being affiliated with that kind of movement? I'm really proud to be affiliated with the Cubs, you know, and it's a shame because, you know, I played with the Royals and I was in playoffs, World Series, and they don't do anything for their alumni, not like the Cubs do. And Mr. Ricketts has made the alumni feel like they're part of the organization. So the branding of the Cubs is obviously very important. Uh, how do you, and I think you just partially answered it, how do you kind of play your part? What is the next step to perpetuating the brand? It's now met the challenge of winning the World Series onward and upward, but how do you kind of keep pace with the brand and make sure that the Cubs stay the brand that is one of the top five or six in baseball? Well, you know, you, you look at it, some of the older guys, they're older guys now. And, uh, you know, the guys that are coming in, like Gary Matthews, myself, Bob Denier, you know, there's a lot of guys that are proud to be Cubs. We love to go to the ballpark and meet people and, and just, you know, uh, be a supporter of the Chicago Cubs. All right, now here's the piece that the Reuters International and other audiences really want to know. Um, Pete LeCock's baseball career is only one small part of this renaissance man. So talk about Pete LeCock and entertainment and your dad and the whole story. You know, I grew up, my, my dad's Peter Marshall, the host of Hollywood Squares, but a lot of people didn't know that my dad's sister is Joanne Drew. And she co-starred with John Wayne. And, you know, we always had interesting people, in, you know, in our, in our house, that's for sure. Sammy Davis Jr. was a really good friend of my dad's. There were a lot of the guys at Rat Pack, because my dad did summer stock every year in Las Vegas, and that kind of grew up in Vegas, hanging out with Joy Bishop and Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra. And Tom Dreesen's here, and he's, you know, he's, he's a great guy, too, and a good friend of my dad's. And You know, it's it's interesting, because, uh, you know, growing up with, with that, you know, people always say, wasn't that exciting? Well, it was just, that's the way it was, you know. Those people were friends of my dad's. And it was just kind of normal to see them around. Most people try to grow up and play baseball and can't hit a curveball and go into acting. <laughs> you have another perspective. When did you realize when you were growing up that you your career was with stick and ball, not stage and screen? Well, you know, I didn't start playing baseball until I was 14. And then I was the number one draft pick when I was 17. And, you know, it... It was amazing. I, I really wanted to play professional football, and I'm surely glad I didn't go that route. And, you know, in my high school, I had guys like Robin Yount, Rick Dempsey, Rick Arbach, Kevin Kennedy, Guy Hanson, Larry Durker, Rick Durker, Larry Yount, you know. So we had a good baseball program, and we learned a lot. And we played a 62-game high school schedule. So we played a lot of baseball. 
there were a lot of scouts looking at other people, and, uh, you know, I just happened to get picked up. Sports and entertainment, you have the ability to see it firsthand, the differences and similarities. What are the kind of biggest differences between the world of sports and the world of entertainment from your perspective? Well, you know, the, the world of entertainment is, uh, is definitely who you know. And in baseball, you can't hide talent. You've got you've to perform. Everything's a number. And if your numbers don't fit, you're not going to play baseball very long. So I, I, that's kind of it. My dad started singing in nightclubs when he was 12 years old in New York, you know. And, and you know, my dad's dad died at an early age. And he went out and he, he made himself who he is today. And, I mean, can you imagine going to New York and singing in little clubs at 12 years old? But my dad's sister was Joanne Marshall at that time, and she was a Vogue model. And, um, and then when they moved her to Hollywood, she said, Marshall's too long. you got to go to Joanne Drew. So, you know, people are saying, well, why is her name Drew? You're the Marshall. Your name Lecoq. My dad's name is Ralph Pierre Lecoq, and that's what my name is. So your dad lives in L.A. now? He does live in L.A. He's still singing. He's 91 years old. He just was at the McCallum Theater in Palm Desert doing a concert, a Nat King Cole thing. and He's got a radio show, you know, five days a week, Music of Your Life on PBS. and So he keeps busy. He keeps busy. Dodgers fan, Royals fan, Cubs fan? My dad's a Cub fan. He, he was because of you? or Yeah, obviously. Yes. Uh, you know, and again, you know, the, the Cubs have always been so nice to my family, my dad especially, you know, when he'd come into town, they'd make him feel special. But, uh, you know, if, if you're a Cub player and, and it doesn't matter who your dad is, they make you feel good. So Pete Lecoq, uh, sportsman, uh, global sports icon, uh, Peter Marshall Jr., you could say, obviously, Renaissance man. Thank you very much, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrow. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hobte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.